The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Rotorod Football Podcast. As you know, because you make it so, it's the most important podcast in the universe. Thanks so much for listening to yesterday's episode with Hayden Winks, the analytics that matter. Well, I guess the ones that best project success in early NFL careers. Today, I have Sigmund Bloom on. As you know, Sigmund Bloom is a longtime mainstay on Twitter. He just published his Bloom 100, which you can go and check out on Football Guys. You know, I love talking with Sig. I mean, he cares. Like, that's the best way of describing Sigmund and talking with Sig. Um, He cares about football. He cares about you outside of football. He cares about just the world in general. Before that interview, though, I do want to ask you to continue to rate and review the podcast. Again, I'm pushing for 500 reviews so I can do three podcasts a week. It's really how you can show your support for us. And for that, along with subscribing, I super appreciate it. Um, I also want to do a podcast each week, or at least a section of the podcast, just like interacting with all of you. So if you have any questions just about football, about life, about anything, just weirdness, uh, just hit me up on Instagram. It's Josh J. Norris on Instagram, or just leave them in the review section of iTunes or wherever else, and I'll find them and I'll ask them, obviously give you a shout out as well. Um, So thank you. Thank you for doing that. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I started this interview, and this is how we're going to pick it up, with Sig, just asking him, what did he learn from 2018 that he can spin forward football-wise in 2019 and beyond? I think we're getting into the future now that we dreamed of, where there's more rational coaching, there's more offensive coaches willing to take chances to be right in a way that it's explosive and redefines offensive football, focusing on chunk plays that uh, the old way of thinking, which is still present in a lot of moments uh, is going the way of the Dodo and uh, coaches are waking up to the, the run could be a wasted play in certain situations, in many situations, but not all situations, um, offensive personnel and the way offensive personnel is being deployed to positionless football, blending of wide receiver and tight end and running back. And the, Uh, importance of players that can do more than one thing and how that creates personnel mismatches and puts the defense uh, in a bind running backs, not important. I mean, in the terms of the production, really the production is created more by the offense than the running back, running back can add some value, but a competent running back can get 
enough value in just about any offense except like the bottom five to matter. Um, and there's a lot of functional, competent running backs out there. And I think that passing is getting easier. It faded as the season went on, but all of those like numbers, the range of numbers, of course, fantasy. I'm always going to get back to fantasy. The ranges of numbers are getting higher, the high end. And, um, you know, we're paying more attention to play callers now. Uh, we're talking about play callers a lot more than we did five years ago. So it's good. Like evolution is happening. Uh, you hit on so many things and I could just go point by point there and we could fill up the next 45 minutes. But mm. uh, one thing that I do want to hit on is you mentioned coaching kind of taking a step forward, making smarter decisions. This is a big picture question. And because I think you're a big picture kind of guy, yeah. Sig, in terms of macro and then micro and all the good stuff in between. Do you, how much of an impact do you think the outside voices have had in coaches making better decisions, whether it be play calling, whether it be going forward in certain situations, whether it be team building in some aspects? Do you think the promotion I'm not going to say of, of you or me, but sure. of voices as a whole from the outside, then them getting asked about it, them reading about it on their own free time. Do you think that's had as much of an impact as, as I do? It has to have. We're all participating in this conversation, whether we realize it or not. The draft is a great time. You talk about big picture. Draft is the perfect time to talk big picture things. And the draft is a great time for the you know, all of us like rabble in the crowd on the stage blend with each other. I mean, literally at the senior bowl or at the combine, you know, rubbing elbows with each other. Uh, and absolutely look, and this isn't, this isn't anything new, you know, um, a lot of people have, have kind of rubbed two sticks together from the outside and affected what happened on the inside and eventually become the inside. And then that may happen. We still may have a, another phase to this, Josh, where, I don't want to say too much because the NFL is super secretive and they don't want people to know who they work with, but there's more crossover and listening than you think. Um, and, and absolutely the ways of thinking about the game that are put forward are affecting the way the decision makers in the game look at it. It's interesting because I, I like, wasn't there something with AAF where they were like, or one of going to be one of these leagues, Josh, where they have like the crowdsource call to play or something like that? Yeah, that's your call football was yeah. one. Um, I think there is a second season for that, but I think the AAF is doing something somewhat similar in their yeah. app as well. And it's, and it, it fits into that. And I think it is an interesting time. And you know, I think absolutely, for instance, and I, uh, Evan did the great, uh, rousing speech like leading us off to war talking about how the best analyst or fantasy <laughs> analyst because we consider everything and yeah. i i i, I love i mean you know let's go like like the charge um and certainly you know some of the things that were done like like we were talking about measurables and i was even a bit resistant sometimes to it before at least the public conversation about the draft revolved around measurables. And then you can kind of reverse engineer some of the picks and see how measurables, not that there weren't organizations that were obsessed with maybe one or two aspects of measurables, but right. that directly comes out of stuff that was happening, I think, simultaneously at least, if not before the league was focused on it. And there are other parts of that too. I mean, I think in our own bubble, we were talking about the separation of edge and linebacker for a very long time. And now we're getting, you know, separation of edge and defensive linemen, at least the last two years of the combine, you know, the defensive line would go first and the edge are in the second group. And like, it's the smallest little thing, 
but it kind of just does show you that there is somewhat of a transition and moving forward and, you know, not ideas that we necessarily came up with, but ones that are being applied that we have discussed as well. Sig, I do want to mention this though. And, and it's more of a question. I apologize that the train is going by, but it's just what I afford up here. At some point, do you think that we have lost too much respect for those that work in the league and those that are tenured in the league and make those decisions? Because I feel like every false step has been generating a ton of negative reaction. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is true in every form of work and business. There's just a lot more attention now. Attention, like constant attention. I mean, in some ways, it's a relief because the news cycle or the conversation moves on so quickly now. So it's everything while it's at the top of it, and then it becomes nothing as soon as something else takes its place. But absolutely, we're a lot harder on them now than we were, and a lot more instant in criticism and just assuming we know all the considerations that went into that decision and why it went the way it did. And we'll drag them for it. I do it. We all do it. Um, It's just part of the vernacular when you're talking about football, but at the same time, I'm all for drawing the mustache on the Mona Lisa or, you know, no sacred cows, you know, we shouldn't mystify what they do. Certainly, I think at this time with the draft, when they'll say things like, well, your job isn't writing on it. Yeah, well, the your job is writing on it bias isn't a good one. It makes you make safer decisions. It makes you make less imaginative decisions. It makes you make decisions that comport with what people have done in the past because they're more defensible. Right. And those of us that can just do it without any recourse actually might be freer to see things and say them. So that's not a bias that we should just defer to scouts. Uh, and, and, and also scouts are in the culture and the culture is right about some things and wrong about other things. And like sometimes the way the culture does it works, but in other contexts it doesn't and they can't always tell the difference. It's evolving and moving forward sloppily the same way we are as human beings. So like yeah. you said, that's not be too harsh. So I'm, I'm all firing on the side of being anti-establishment or anti uh, the idea that, well, they know better. Okay. There are a few more places I want to go before I actually get to the list of questions that I sent you. Sorry about that. I love sick. it. No. Yes. You also mentioned early on how like the importance of passing, right? And how, as we all know, passing has kind of overtaken running. Um, I, I do think from the outside perspective, it's, it's going to step maybe too far. And either sarcastically or not, there have been some statements of, well, like, why even run the football at all, you know? Um, And I think part of that is if you put yourself, and this kind of goes along with the conversation we were just having, like, as much as I can criticize and be negative when watching a football game about some decisions, Sig, there is no way you can put me in a box and tell me to call an NFL game. Right. That's just that's just not going to happen, you know, and I I think from some ways we lose sight that from the outside, not every play, especially running plays, are being called for home runs, you know, or big plays like like there is a design to calling a game. There is not a script necessarily, but it, it flows in a different way than, okay, every offensive play is called to hit a home run, to hit a big play to score a touchdown and for better, for worse. And there is an argument to say that that that's wrong, but it's a fact. And in many ways it's worked. And even, you know, the, the greatest minds out there, Andy Reid doesn't call plays like that. 
Doug Peterson doesn't call plays like that, you know, like some of it is used to set up other actions later on in the contest. And we've seen it from greats like a, a Bill Belichick run team against the Houston Texans that he broke down on his own in previous weeks. Yes. Well, this goes back to your earlier point about should we have more respect, right? Because if any of us got to call a game, something disastrous would probably happen, probably even in the first half, maybe even the first half. <laughs> it would quarter. be so bad. <laughs> yeah, it would be comical. Like any of us and and, and some and, and the best Josh would be the people who are the most pompous about like, oh, I, that's easy. Um, like they would get their quarterback hurt or, you know, like something would happen immediately that would show like it's not as simple. There's like a micro a unbelievable attention to detail and knowing. And there is something about running the football that it just sucks to get blocked. It just sucks to like get pushed. There's something to the spiritual, emotional, psychological And these are aspect. humans out there. And yes. I understand like yeah. the play action element is, you know, some level of misdirection. Correct. Right. Like no matter how bad your running game has been, like there is some instant reaction to, okay, this is my responsibility. I have to act on it because that's how I've always played football. And it, it's, there's absolutely a conditioning element to it of, I mean, that's one of the fun things about what's happening in football too, I think is more ideas of you don't have to block a player with a body. You can block him with his own mind or consciousness, like make get his attention. Don't, 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 you don't have to hit him and knock him down. You just have to make him hesitate, make his mind pause while he's trying to process something that actually has nothing to do with where the play is actually going, whether it's RPO or play action, whatever you call it. But the you know, offensive linemen love to tee off. Running backs like to tee off. And you have to have a mode of clock management. Even Chip Kelly had green, yellow, and red clock management. Like some, Your yeah. team also has to have a mode where you slow it down. And if you're playing an opponent where that's their deficiency, you better well have that mode. I mean, that's isn't that what Bill Belichick's just trying to teach us? Or not trying, he's not trying to teach us anything. He's just trying to win the Super Bowl. But what we should be seeing here is like put together a team and trust a team to inhabit any mode you can think of that you need to be in to win a game. Yeah. And and there's some of it to early in a game, calling a play, seeing how a defense reacts to it, right. setting that on the sideline and then shifting it in the second half. Again, if we go back to the Patriots, they do that among the best of anyone else. There's also, and I love that there's so much great content out there from people much smarter than I am, you know, yeah. but there are comments of something to the effect of, okay, their success rate in 11 personnel is this, their success rate in the game in you know, a, a 12 play sample size out of 12 personnel was this. So they should have run more 12 personnel. To me, that's a bit of a stretch. You know, that's a bit of a jump. You can't ask a team that has their roster built in a certain way, has their game plan built in a certain way to then just switch over and run 12 personnel for the entire game. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it yeah. just doesn't work that way. And I, I, sometimes I feel like we lose sight. And again, I'm not saying every team is perfect, you know, but we, we do lose sight of what the NFL actually is and how it is called. And again, I think we do lose some respect for the people that are at that level at times. We do. I think you're right to say that it's not that simple. And really, when you see something like 11 personnel has this success rate, 12 personnel has this success rate. Like that's not plays, you know, that's, right. a, that's a package. Right. And and then you look at it and you it should when you see these large disparities, it should maybe make you ask the question why. And Lord knows uh, these guys are spending, you know, 80, 90, 100 hours a week on this. So devote Sleeping some hours work. to that. 
Yeah, exactly. So devote some hours to that. Like look at the individual plays because it could be skewed by a few outcomes against a team that had a, a you know a safety that was hurt that week that you could attack or you know whatever. Um, and ask the question. I always want to fond of saying let these things ask questions, not answer them. Ask the question, well, why? Why are we doing so much better? We will learn yeah. something about it. But at the same time, I will say this. The Patriots in the Super Bowl, I think when they ran that play, three plays in a row that Tony Romo was gushing about, the two tight end, two running back set, which I'd love to see more of in the NFL. And the two tight end, two running back set can hang in this pass-heavy NFL. Absolutely. Personnel. That's why I love like Josh Jacobs and TJ Hawkinson. Like I love these guys that still give your offense a chance to have a lot of different looks from the same personnel package and yep. have pre-snap motion and, and shifts that put somebody in the defense. You identify something going into the game that if we put this guy in this situation, we're going to massacre them. You know, it's a jugular. It's like it's like the boxer who sees that place where the knockout punch can get in. And you can do that with two tight ends and two running backs just as well as you can do it with four wide receivers if you have the right players. Right. And they, that they've run that play, Josh, like 11 times all year or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And Belichick, just like same the way they um, well, he is one step ahead of trust. Well, but trust your players too. trust your players to do things that you might not have got to see them do in practice a lot or that you relied on and know this is what we do. Well, it's it's a it's a super fair point, Sig, and I am being kind of negative right now. But I, 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 I do feel like that's not said enough for how negative kind of the perception of the league is it gets at times. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. But to your point, and again, there are people out there creating content that are much smarter than I am with better mm. tools than I have at my disposal. But what I do want to say is rather than looking at like one game of a personnel grouping success, I think sure. the best way to approach it, because a game is such a small sample size for any player, for any team, you know? They might only get 40, 50 plays in a single game on offense. It's to look at, you know, once we get to week six, week seven of a defense and say, hey, this defense is poor at covering this group. Look at that personnel grouping. You know, this is kind of next level stuff. Look at that personnel grouping that they are worse at defending in. And then also maybe bring in a PFF, maybe bring in another grading system and even just watch the film and say, hey, these are the certain plays that they are struggling against as well. And I think that that's the next level of the analysis. It's like this type of receiver that when he's matched up against this corner can exactly. shake him with this. Um, it's making sure that we're blocking this part of their defense where the pressure's likely to come from. And it's not just as simple as put that package out there and it'll work. Okay, so you had on some prospects and we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. But since at one point in your life, yeah. uh, the Steelers did move the needle for <laughs> you in terms of happiness and sadness. Look, I yeah. was there with the team too. Um, I'm not sure if it still is that way, but I, I, in its simplest form, Sig, what happened to the Steelers? Because Mm. this is a window for them to win. And it certainly seems like this off season, they could lose top talents at their respective positions and Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown. And that just does not happen in the NFL now. Yeah. Right. There ain't no way this was the plan with either of those players. Okay. Something went wrong, and you can say, well, they're both just bad seeds, and they were going to sour their relationship with any rational organization that handled them in a fair and reasonable way, and we'll see. I don't know, but chances are somebody on the Steelers side of things contributed to this, and of course, the old saw about Mike Tomlin and players coach and uh, you have people coming out now saying he let Antonio things that we all know are true. Josh, if you can play, you can get away with stuff, you know, correct. Let it go too far. 
like any job. If right. you Let- bring in massive amounts of production, right. you have more leeway than other people that do not. Yeah, Q Matt Waldman saying the stuff that we talk about with the NFL is like any workplace, you know. Correct. Um, and we can look towards examples from outside of football to understand these things. I have a few. Uh, there's there's no way that this was <laughs> how you're supposed to handle this. It, it should never ended up at either one of these outcomes. Mike Tomlin probably has uh, a hand to say a hand in this in his culture. Um, if I had to make up a narrative and talk out of another orifice, as I often do, I would say that the Steelers as an organization, three head coaches in 50 years, you know, they're used to the idea of the Steeler way. And there was something to it. I know Chad Spann, who was on Matt show, would always say, like, he bounced around to different organizations. And the Steelers, you felt it was different when you were there. But that doesn't solve everything. They, I think that they just overestimated that playing their hand in this NFL, you know, you have James Conner. I'm a Steeler for life. He just said yesterday. And, and that's your perfect Steeler. Okay. But not every player that's someone that can help this team win Super Bowls is going to be that kind of player. Also, I think they probably def- were too deferential to Ben Roethlisberger. Um, Roethlisberger's personality is in this too. Every team takes on the personality of their head coach and quarterback. And I don't know that Roethlisberger is, well liked by his teammates i don't know the I, I i don't know it was a toxic mix and while as a fan of the team it hurts it hurts that the bell ben brown bryant throw him there too steelers what's everyone joking about bees right lost to blake bortles in the playoffs um it hurts but at the same time you want to live in a world that where the rules or karma or something like that exist and make it make sense and even though the Steelers are falling and falling hard at this moment, and it can turn around quickly in the NFL, maybe by the end of the year, they're yeah. pulling it together and transcending it and becoming a new team in the, a different image. But this is NFL karma. And I'm excited, excited, Josh, to turn the page to see who takes the plunge on these guys and how do they play and how do they affect their team? And what does the next chapter teach us? So, so you are much closer to it than I am. It's still tough for me, Sig, to completely believe that Antonio Brown is not on this roster next year because, because I mean, one, it has to happen pre-draft or it's not going to happen. Right. Like they're not going to get nothing from Antonio Brown in 2019, along with the draft pick that they would have to get in 2020. You know what I'm saying? Like it's either pre-draft or it's not happening. And two, I mean, there's talk of a third round pick Ugh. for Antonio Brown. So what what you're getting in exchange for Antonio Brown is $21 million in dead money mm-hmm. and a third round pick to give away a top five receiver in the NFL. The Hall of Fame receiver who's still basically in his prime. Yeah. That doesn't make in a window to win. No. Like that doesn't no. make any sense to me he from a it. football math perspective. Yeah, no, they botched this. They totally botched it. And look, it, again, it might just be that Antonio Brown's really gone off the deep end and we'll see. Although, and it also could be that he's gone off the deep end, and only by changing teams could that fix it. Like if he stayed with the Steelers, it was over. It was it, the well was poisoned. But you're right; it's a total failure. Uh, it, it, it should never happen. He sh- the compensation should be as far as strictly on the field what he can provide to a team a first and a, another second day pick. Right. They're not going to get near that. We can talk about how they they've publicly botched handling it. How Antonio Brown has contributed to that. A second round pick as a as a fan of the team, I hope at least they get a second round pick. They should be able to get a second plus. This is where we get to real interesting negotiation stuff because of how public this all is. A team can definitely take a hard line stance, but will something prevail in a, a, a team 
like a Patriots, for instance, that says, oh, come on. Like I look at Khalil Mack and I think if no team was offering two firsts without a second coming back for Khalil Mack, they're being way too stingy with their first round picks because mm-hmm. Khalil Mack helps you win football games and first mm-hmm. round picks, cap room, whatever resource you have, you use it to get players that help you win football games. And, and, and he, teams understand their windows to win. And right. it's why the Rams were in on Khalil Mack. Like their right. whole plan of, okay, we're going to trade a first round pick in 2019 to rent Khalil Mack for a season and then trade him away after the year is beautiful. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's how I, I wish and I hoped the other NFL teams would run their rosters as well because it's taking advantage of your moment. And this is yeah. their moment and they know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So some team is going to do that. I hope that a team swoops in maybe and does give a late first round pick or at the very least a second round pick. Plus I fear, and it will hurt my heart if they only get that third or fourth round pick because the whole thing has been fouled so much because it just, it just doesn't sit right and make sense. And Antonio Brown was supposed to retire as a stealer. Antonio Brown was supposed to be, you know, he's supposed to follow Swan and Stallworth into the, the hall of fame and carry that. Correct me if I'm wrong. And, and maybe you're as blind to this stuff as I am. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should just get one of the over the cap guys on here with me. But yeah. if, if he is traded to a team, I mean, it's basically just like $12 million a year. It's really reasonable. Year, $12 million oh, that's another reason you can him. first round pick. It's super reasonable. It's yeah. crazy. Like the Steelers are the ones that are paying the money. And I know they can yeah. just pay for it this year. But again, it just doesn't make any sense to me that if it's not a first round pick, that he's not on the roster. Yeah. I look, if I was in the war room and the Steelers were advising me, I'd say you draw. Yeah. You draw a bright line, a first round pick or maybe two seconds. And you don't back off of that. And if Antonio Brown has to sit out the season the way Le'Veon Bell did because he's just so frustrated, then so be it. He's yeah. still under contract and you have an asset and you don't undersell that asset no matter who said what. It, look, things change all the time. People say things, Josh McDaniels. I mean, people say things and then change their mind behind closed doors and publicly. So they don't owe him trading him just because he says, I want to be traded because that's actually bad for a culture for team players to know that they can just like say, I want to be traded and get traded. No, yeah. that's not how it works. At least it's a team that has evaluated wide receivers possibly better than any yes. other franchise ever. Um, and I, I feel like <laughs> Sig, you and I should make football math like a thing. Like th- this just doesn't make sense football math wise, you know? And, mm-hmm. and it doesn't always make sense, you know, but right, I, right. I, with, with a hall of fame caliber player, I think it has to in order for it to work. But again, we know very little of what goes on in a locker room. And I will not act like I do. And he has a blonde mustache. I think maybe that it's, it's kind I mean, of, when you have a blonde mustache. It might, you know, might have guys say like, I draw the line at blonde mustache. I don't know. This, this might go over your head a little bit, but I think yeah. he is cosplaying as like a randomly generated NBA. TK <laughs> like he looks exactly like that. Before we get into rookies and you put out your, yeah. your bloom 100 and it's free yeah. for everyone to go look at on football guys. And I highly recommend it because he updates it throughout the, draft season and even after the draft. And I think that that's the most important update, obviously, but it's, it's a fun read and SIG has fresh eyes and all this stuff. But before we get to prospects, I do want to end kind of this NFL discussion on this because as soon as all these rookies swoop in, we figured about last year's group. Is there anyone from the 2018 class that you are, I don't know, unreasonably excited sure. about for 2019? I'll go position. I don't keep it to the fantasy positions. Josh Allen. I still, I'm happy to be on Josh Allen Island. There's a few more people on Josh Allen Island. All it's of Buffalo. It's going to be fun to watch. Yeah. Well, and I love Buffalo. Sister city to Pittsburgh, really, in a lot of ways. So Josh Allen. And I hope that it isn't that Brian Dable, who 
did a great job, just made the game easier for him, but defense are going to catch up. And then people that really thought that he was going to fail in the NFL will be proven correctly. I hope that it's he's he's engaged now. They're engaged and they can build, especially by getting him some receivers and some competency on offense. A running back, a Jordan Wilkins. And I, I think if you give Jordan Wilkins Marlon Max carries, he might hmm. do the same or better than Marlon Mack. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I still think there's something there. I still think there's something there. I still love Anthony Miller. From a fantasy perspective, it's tough because the Bears offense has a lot of viable targets. I, I, I still think he's playing hurt for a decent part of the year again, which might actually be the bearing the lead, and he's just going to remain hurt with the shoulder issue. I, I still love him as a player. And of course, when I mentioned Kiki Cutie, he wasn't, he wasn't even close to healthy last year. His fifth gear from Texas Tech was not apparent at all last year. And I think you see how his acumen for football and how quickly he gained the trust of Deshaun Watson of the Texans offense. That was on display. His ability to stay healthy, not so much. If he can stay healthy, if he can come into the year 100% and we can see his long speed, there's a whole dimension to Kiki Cutie's game that we haven't even seen. Uh, And at tight end, I've got to mention Dallas Goddard because I feel like... I think he might be number one on the list for me. Right. Two or three games, the Eagles used him well. And then the rest of the games, some of it was, you know, there were plays when Goddard looked like a rookie, okay? Yeah. Like learning the ropes. But I'm sorry. And look, Zach Ertz is so competent at what he does. But Goddard can add a dimension with Ertz out there that Ertz doesn't necessarily add. To the, he, I mean, it should just be a wide receiver, basically, in that offense. Not positionally, but tactically, what they can do with Goddard. I'll throw out two names, and like they're not under the radar names at all. But yeah. I do think they're a little bit forgotten. Um, and one is because he didn't finish like the last six weeks of the season, but that's carry on Johnson. Oh, yes. um, I mean, he, he looked like DeMarco Murray incarnated, mm, you know, reincarnated, mm-hmm. I should say just the way he ran the football, he ran with power and was able to evade and, and even work in the passing game. And some, I, yep. carry on Johnson's a really, really fun player, even though the lions, we really shouldn't be excited about them. Um, <laughs> and then there was a lot of preseason love as, as I think should have been for Darius Geis. My only mm. question here with Darius Geis is, is the roster worse in 2019 than it was in 2018 at least offense wise because obviously they don't have a quarterback on the roster right now basically and two we saw and i'm not going to say that darius geist is as limited of a player as adrian peterson is right now but we saw what this offense was in its perfect form with adrian peterson out there and it's you know when everything's going well when they have positive or neutral game script it's giving the ball to uh, Adrian Peterson. And when it's not, then it really floundered and it really sucked, you know? And, and I do think that Darius guys offers a little bit more in the passing game because, and he didn't show it at LSU, but he kind of showed it during the draft process. But is that the best you're going to get is just another iteration of Adrian Peterson. And that's not even to mention that, you know, Adrian Peterson might be brought back next season. That's the problem. It's a bad offense. And I think Peterson, what he did for the team, they should bring him back yeah. and keep each other fresh, Geis and Peterson. And it can't hurt Geis to be in the room with him. So that's the big problem in short term. And look, in dynasty leagues, if you're looking more than one or two years down the line, you're probably looking too far down the line at this point. So I love Geis and his best football is just yet to come. But I don't like him. I don't like Washington. Talk about karma. Washington continues to always be on the brink of collapse, which feels about right when it's Dan Snyder. I quickly want to hit on this tweet that you put out on February 15th. Uh, you talked about, and you were watching Josh Jacobs, I'm assuming, who everyone out there, Uh he's going to be a rookie running back from Alabama. Not a lot of, you know, wear and tear on him. I mean, they obviously rotate a lot of backs out of there. 
And he doesn't have that much passing down production, kind of like Ezekiel Elliott coming out of school a little bit. But when he did receive those opportunities, he looked quite competent in them. So you think possibly that there's some upside there. Um, But I'll read the tweet. And I know that's, you know, faux pod podcast world, but I do want people out there to understand what you're saying. So even in a devalued running back era, Josh Jacobs is worth a top 10 to 15 selection. The reason I asked that, Sig, is do you really think that running backs should be valued that aren't immediately A pluses in the passing game in that top 10 to 15 area? Yeah, I think you nailed it, right? That's the key, is it's a player that transcends the running back position, uh, the league moving toward passing, et cetera, et cetera, so that um, you have the blocking aspect, you have the route running aspect, and everything that comes after that, like their, their hands, their ball skills, the ability to get yards after the catch. And absolutely, I think I started saying a year or two ago, Josh, that we're soon going to look at a running back who only catches screen passes and dump offs and still does that well as a negative. Interesting. But I, yeah, and hmm, I think it depends on, and I interrupt you, I'm sorry. I think it yeah, depends no on the offensive play caller in some ways because you look at a lot of what Todd Gurley did was just look comfortable and competent in those swings and flares out in space. And what Sean McVay is able to do is create, you know, five yards of distance between him and the next defender. And if he breaks that first tackle, then it's a big game. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so yeah. I, I think at the very least you need to be comfortable. If you're talking early. Yeah. <laughs> right. True. True. But like, you can't be Jordan Howard out there because that like completely right. eliminates you and any threat that there is in the passing game to running backs. Yeah. And that's the idea. It's like, you're going to run these plays I mean, look at the Patriots with the three or four running backs they always have. You're going to run these plays with players that are good at the things you're asking them to do. And while it's nice to have a player that can create deception by doing more than one thing, you don't want to have someone who's just merely competent at something. And I mean, I think that Todd Gurley, uh, going back to, you mentioned Elliot. I mean, Gurley showed a lot of ability as a receiver. And I think that Jacobs, forget about his production. I mean, I saw what Jacobs did at Alabama on just one play in the Auburn game. And in that game, I think in the first half, you see him completely blow someone up four times. Yeah. Twice, I believe twice as a blocker, once as a receiver after the catch, and once as a runner. And I don't mean, I, I mean, plays where the crowd audibly reacts to it and they run the, the replay in slow motion. So you see the devastation that he lays on another uh, Division One SEC football player, you know? Um, and then you see this play where he runs a go route out of the backfield. And he shows an initial burst, an acceleration out of the uh, backfield, and a second gear to just leave the... It was like the linebacker looked like he was standing still when it was time to turn and run with Josh Jacobs. He creates a ton of separation. But uh, the quarterback actually throws the ball instead of over the inside shoulder where it had been almost like a walk-in touchdown or a walk-in maybe run over a safety touchdown over the outside shoulder. Jacobs flips his hips 180, doesn't break stride at all, doesn't slow down at all, and positions himself and tracks the ball over the opposite shoulder seamlessly. Like I would love to see some of the wide receivers in this class do this. Yeah. And then two defenders are converging at him and he makes it takes an angle so that they run into each other instead of getting him. And then he basically stiff arms, breaks a tackle at the goal line uh, to finish the play. So you're seeing it all on display. Give me someone that can do that and be the hammer. So that what you see the, 
Rams able to do is actually run the ball well out of certain sets and then just destroy you when they pass out of those sets because you're tensed up to stop the run. You have to stop the run. And Josh Jacobs can do that where he can be a hammer like Derrick Henry or Leonard Fournette uh, and run very physically, but also make these chunk plays and also as a pass blocker too. So you have to go max, just, max protect. Yep. Just devastates guys when he uh, squares them up. One, I think that it is super important to identify those passing down traits because when you just look at the top 10 backs as of late, right? You can go back to Ezekiel Elliott, Todd Gurley, then you have Saquon Barkley, then you have Christian McCaffrey. Those are the four successful ones, right? Right. The one that was not successful was Leonard Fournette. And it's basically because he had no passing game prowess. And you also mentioned like there is a difference between passing down production and passing down ability. Like these college offenses that these players are stuck in for three or so seasons, um, it's, you know, their production can be wholly dependent as a running back if they want to throw to the running back or not. Um, the same thing can be said for tight ends, right? Like yeah. some of these teams just don't want to use tight ends at all. And in many cases, that position is being eliminated at the college level. Um, I do also want to make this point, Sig, because it seems like there's just such this negative perception of selecting a running back in the first round. And I think there is such a major difference between selecting a running back in the top five and then running back inside the top 30 picks, you know, like picks mm -hmm. five and picks 25 are not created equal. Those rosters, those, that management, the success of that team is not nearly on the same level. And also Sig, there is something to an ease of an evaluation when selecting any uh, position, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because yeah. it's like, okay, rather than take one, you know, at pick 24, wait until pick 124. I mean, there's a reason why a lot of these players, and I know so many running backs become successful later on and even undrafted free agents. There's a reason why selecting one earlier happens. And it's because a team is most confident in that player and in that evaluation. And I think too often we lose sight of that statement. Well, hopefully they have a plan, right? They have right. a plan for unlocking the value that this player is going to add by being the guy playing his position instead of some other guy. Um, and production at the running back position and fantasy skews this is cheap if the if the offense is good, you know, Damian Williams or CJ Anderson or whoever. Uh, however, a running back that tactically adds value in a part of the game that you're going to emphasize, like what Ezekiel Elliott did for Dallas, you know, with the offensive line they have. So that unlocks more of the value of the offensive line that they've built by having a running back like him. Or if you have a, an ability to use players in a way um, that, and this is why I like Josh Jacobs so much. And I think David Montgomery will be an excellent receiver out of the backfield too, um, where you have, it's, I mean, it's really short passing to the running back is an extension of the running game. And if you have someone who's so good at those tasks, um, then it makes your job as an offensive play caller, as an offense, so much easier. So uh, another question we have to ask, and you, you, when you bring up between 5 and 30, it's, a, it, it's good to emphasize this because and it's early, Josh, okay? I was talking to Dame Brugler this morning on my show. Who? And... You know, he said, and absolutely correctly, there's not 10 top 10 prospects in this class. Um, and I think you are going to see, you know, for some teams, a break at six or seven or eight, where the next level is a plateau that may stretch as far as 25 or 30. And positional value is absolutely an element in that. And what you don't want to do is like the 
Bucks did last year. Like they traded down, good job, and they got a run stuffing nose tackle or you know a, a two down nose tackle from right. Vita Vea. Maybe more than that. Like oh, you bought, you didn't stick the landing. If they would have taken Derwin James, on the other hand, yeah. and at a position that had been somewhat more devalued safety, but Derwin, I never understand why that happened. So trading down is going to be if a team wants Josh Jacobs at four or five, Oakland or Tampa, the uh, who could use him. The uh, the public will probably kill them for doing it. Uh, if they trade down, then it becomes more viable. We don't have to go down a, a Bucks tangent here, but it's just yeah. kind of hilarious to me that they take a run-stuffing defense tackle in the first round, and then the second round, a guy who really had no passing game upside, even though despite his size, to me, in Ronald Jones. Yeah. So that's just completely losing sight of where the NFL is and, and where it's and going. Jason Light is still there, right? Still there. Uh, Sig, you also, like I mentioned, you put out your Bloom 100 uh, mm-hmm. Kind of an overall question here, and if it applies to any of the players, feel free to bring them up no matter what position. Um, but I'm always open about talking about my biases when it comes to prospect evaluations, because I think we all have them. And instead of you know trying to hide them or saying you know I'm an unbiased person, it's best to be honest about them. So going through you know a hundred pr- players, you have to have biases somewhere. What kind of players do you tend to drift towards at certain positions? I've always been more of a sucker for the smaller shiftier running back the more dynamic running back um going back to guys like lorenzo booker you know uh it's fun to remember your biggest misses uh the game is changing now where i think you know a tree cohen and and so on yeah these players darren sproles was another favorite of mine um these types of running backs i think have a more of a place in the nfl now um you certainly look at like and Amir Abdullah is kind of a warning. Ooh. And even what the Browns have done with Duke Johnson, ooh, warning a little bit, um, even though they paid him. Giovanni Bernard, who's an excellent player, but is kind of getting marginalized for that Joe, Joe Mixon, that do-it-all guy with those passing down skills too, but it can also be your hammer and he's athletic and big and so on. Um, you know, But certainly in this year's class, like Devin Singletary, and Travion Williams come to mind as players who were like, which Dalvin Cook is maybe more of a success on that axis, the more undersized back axis. But I always like the smaller, shiftier backs. Um, a, a wide receiver, uh, it's I, I actually got Brandon Marshall was my guy back in the day, and I I liked the big guys who can dominate. And I maybe am being a little too too reliant on that. I like Hakeem Butler so much. Because I, 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 here's one that I'm learning that I'm falling for or have been is whenever I see that long limbed mantis kind of <laughs> bo- my body, yeah, but also explosive. And yeah, I yeah. think of Randy Moss as like the alpha of all the alphas, like the archetype. When I see explosiveness and that long limb body type and the ability, at least sometimes, to use it to create the absurd catch radius and win balls that you should have no business winning, I get really excited. So I like Butler and even Antoine Wesley is growing on me. A tight end, I, you know, the athletes, I always like to think, oh, the, the basketball players, the athletes, the rest will get filled in. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but it, it's it, it's fun because, like I said, like at least the game is catching up. But at the same time, we remember we had the big size argument about wide receiver, Josh, in like five, six, seven years ago. And now it seems like size is out of vogue at wide receiver. I agree. Like I remember for a while it was, and I think it might have been because there were so many big wide receivers succeeding as rookies and second year players. And like, that's why they were doing so well in the red zone. But as we know now, it's just about separation and sustaining that separation. And sometimes, you know, contest catches in the red zone and that equals success too. 
yeah, separation. Well, it's going to be interesting. There's guys in this class like Arcega Whiteside, I, I think, is going to be one that is a bit polarizing. Um, even um, Harry and Harmon are not great separators. So it's going to be interesting to see where they go. It's going to be interesting how they test. Who takes them? That's always fascinating, too, because Green Bay tripled up on the big receivers last year when most teams weren't interested. So I love the draft. I always like to say teams can't lie to us, and we'll learn. You know, Sometimes we'll laugh at them, but we'll learn what's on their mind. Yeah. It's, I do think it's always fun to have those models that you are chasing. Um, I mean, you mentioned Darren Sproles. I think that's like the number one that comes to mind. And like for years and years, I think the NFL was chasing that mold as well. And even defensively, like they were doing that with Jerry Porter and James Harrison, you know, the Steelers did that year after year at the edge spot, taking those undersized uh, edge rushers. They were kind of squatty and then they kept just failing at it. Right. Um, uh, with the running back position, it took us years and years to get to someone like Tariq Cohen. And then just after Tariq Cohen, like seven picks later, Denon Pumphrey got selected. Um, so I think teams kind of are in the same situations as we are in those situations and in, in, in that way, Sig, and they do the exact same thing. So I, I do want to close every podcast segment in the same way. And I'm glad you're the first one here with me doing it because, you know, now that the season is over, there is, um, not free time necessarily, but there's not a strict schedule that we are following week after week. So for the people, and I did not prepare for this question, so hopefully you have an answer, but for the people, is there any content out there that you have been consuming outside of football that has really enlightened you, elevated you, entertained you as of late? Oh, certainly, certainly. Um, there's a lot of things that rush into my mind. You know, from a more mundane standpoint, and this has been out there for a long time, so I'm probably like, well, duh. There's it was a series on Amazon Prime, classic albums, hmm. and I was shocked because they actually get the the people from the bands and and the producers to sit down in the studio and show the tricks they did with the recordings and you know different very important people to the story and they really just tell the story of the band or the artist and the album and it's the actual people who live the story and it's some of it's enthralling and you learn a lot about how they do these. I don't want to always just say tricks because that might be. Um, the wrong term making it sound small yeah, yeah. but the, the idea that like what turns a record into something that etches Special. your mind and it's something a touch that you might not identify as the thing that you're responding to but there was something really good on netflix i'm reading books about new orleans right now having just moved here so um there's a book nine lives i'm reading it. that was great i think it's called like the forces that made new orleans it was also great and it's if you like history or you like just understanding the ram shackle like yeah. this clumsy way that everything moves forward um new orleans is a place where history is like right on the surface it's the past is always present in new orleans um but the one thing i want to really highlight yeah i can go on and on and on about this on netflix there's this um it was called patria p-a-t-r-i-a and it was this mexican historian going to the places in this uh, part of Mexican history, uh, 1854 to 1867, when he, he considers like when the country's soul was really forged. And he's going to the places where these things happen and pointing out like at these moments, like this speech was delivered, this battle happened or something like that. And he's smoking and cursing. And he's gotten often like friends with him who are also 
some sorts of college professors or other experts, but he's recounting the story with this great reverence. Like you can tell he has a deep love of his country and the idea he has of his country. And just to walk in those places and tell those stories, it makes it enthralling. You feel like Game of Thrones or something like that. You know what I mean? He's like going to those places and telling the story of what happened. And it's it's really immersive. And it just made me think like, while the history of our country is enthralling and I could go off on a tangent here, Josh, about the way we tell the history of our country that should change <laughs> and is changing. Um, to, there's, you know, it's history and like human affairs. It's, it's just so engrossing when someone can just reduce it down to how dramatic and, and epic the events of human history are. Sig, I love you. Thanks yeah, for doing this, yeah. buddy. I, I really appreciate oh. you taking the time. For him out there, you can follow him, as you know, on Twitter at Sigmund Bloom. Also, go check out that Bloom 100 and everyone over at Football Guys. They're some of the best people that I know. Um, they've been great to me over the years, and hopefully I can bring them as much joy in the future. So, Sig, uh, thank you, and for everyone out there, talk to you all soon. See ya. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.